Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, according to a new poll done by the Ontario Realtors Association, more than half of Ontarians wanting to become homeowners have given up hope and they're considering relocating. What kind of repercussions could that have? Canada is going to continue sending aid to Afghanistan after the U.S. troop withdrawal next month. Ira Braun, a professor of international relations and political science at the University of Toronto, will join us to discuss that. And more than 160 unmarked graves have been found on the site of a former residential school on a B.C. island. This specific school was actually referred to as Canada's Alcatraz by survivors. We'll find out why. The Bill Kelly Podcast starts now. Today on The Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. If you or anybody in your family uh, has tried to buy a house in the last little while, uh, you know that there's a problem going on. I mean, we're talking about a big problem, and it's all to do with affordability. Uh, but there's more to it than that. Uh, a couple of days ago on the program, uh, we talked with Bertaza Hader, who was a professor at the Ted Rogers School of Management at Ryerson University. And uh, he says there is a, a, a big disconnect in the housing crisis that needs to be addressed. The main disconnect in Canada's housing policy is this sustained denial uh, of the recognition that we have not built enough housing and we have more people looking for housing and whatever housing we built in the last 30 years is not of the type that people really are looking for. We have essentially built high-rise housing more so over the last two decades, whereas now we see that there's an increasing demand for uh, low-rise housing, especially housing where people can raise families and, and that disconnect has meant that we have not built enough housing more people chasing fewer homes, resulting in price escalation at rates that should not be there. Well, uh, the professor's uh, not the first one that's uh, echoed those sentiments, and uh, I'm not so sure the government's listening because we still have this problem. And then now it's manifesting itself in what seems to be a rush out of the province. People simply say we can't afford houses in Ontario anymore. Joining us to talk about this is Tim Hudak. Tim, of course, is the CEO for the Ontario Realtors Association. Uh, Tim, thank you so much for the time. Good to have you with us today. Hey, Bill, always a pleasure. Thanks for having me back on. You know, it was about two years ago, you came into the studio and we talked about this and you talked about supply and, and, and you warned us at that time. You said there's going to be a spike in prices. It's going to be a problem here. Uh, that certainly has happened and it's continuing to happen right now. But the survey that, uh, that you guys just did, uh, along with the abacus is quite frightening, actually, because and we see this anecdotally, Tim. A lot of people now are simply giving up and saying, I'm going to move someplace else. I can't afford Ontario anymore. Yeah, that's exactly right, uh, Bill. This is a, a five-alarm bell. Uh, we should be very concerned, particularly uh, those uh, decision-makers in provincial governments and municipal, that uh, a lot of the young talents in Ontario, those that are millennials, uh, Generation Z, uh, are saying, you know what, I, I played by the rules, Bill. I, I did everything uh, I was told to do. I worked hard. I got my degree. I got a decent job, but I, I can't afford a home to save my life. And they're saying, the heck with it. I, I'm going to look outside the province of Ontario looking to New Brunswick, Nova Scotia particularly, uh, to move. And that is hugely concerning for our province for two reasons. Number one, it's a major dislocation, disruption uh, of families, the emotional impact. And number two, this is the most educated, talented generation in Canada's history, and we're going to lose that young talent to other provinces. I'm happy to stay in Canada, but I'd much rather have them working here, being entrepreneurs, creating jobs here than somewhere else. The numbers here are staggering, Tim. I mean, according to the data that you guys accumulated here, uh, on, among Ontarians under the age of 45 that are non-homeowners, almost half of them have decided, you know what, we're going to have to look someplace else. And 34% of the people that already own homes that don't think they're affordable anymore and can't maintain that are also considering looking outside the province. 
Yeah, a, a major shift has happened. And in the past, Bill, and, and you've been awesome the way you've covered this issue. You, you've rung the alarm bell around housing affordability in Hamilton, Burlington, Niagara, in uh, our province, but it's moved into a dangerous new territory. Because before, you know, decision makers would say, well, okay, but they can rent for now or they can live a bit longer, you know, with mom and dad uh, until more housing supply comes on stream. But because of the pandemic and a shift towards, as Professor said, you know, more homes, more space for people. Uh, and secondly, the ability to work from home. Now they're saying, I- I'm not going to rent longer. Mom and dad, God bless them, have been great to me, but it's time to get a place of my own. And uh, huge levels of people are looking outside of the province instead of being patient anymore. Their, patient, their patience has run dry. That remote factor is a big one here, isn't it, Tim? Because uh, we've heard that and, and seen this manifested. A lot of people are now working from home and may continue to do that. There are technically a, a situation right now where you could still be working for a company that maybe has their center in downtown Hamilton or downtown Toronto, but you could be in Moncton, New Brunswick, and, and still yeah. be working there because you're online and that's all there is to it. And if the housing is a whole lot cheaper out there than it is here. Uh, you can get a hell of a lot of space there. Not that I'm yeah. advertising for it. I <laughs> here and he's an Ontario realtor. But yeah, look, we, you and I have talked about the phenomenon that existed before COVID, which was drive till you qualify. So people would, you know, live outside of Hamilton or Toronto or major centers and get a tolerable commute distance so they could own a property and raise their family and make a solid investment in their future. And then during COVID, uh, we saw even more pressure for larger spaces and the ability to be a bit more distant because of work from home. So we saw a lot of our smaller communities throughout southeastern, southwestern Ontario doing very well. But now that prices have gone up there, where most homes have multiple offers on them, people get frustrated from going house to house to house and losing all the time. Now they're saying, well, we're just going to pull up roots uh, and move to other provinces. And it's particularly scary when we see folks who are 35 uh, and, uh, well, the youngest, 29 and, uh, and under, or 11% say definitely they're going to move to another province, and 22% say very likely. I mean, you're looking at a massive part of our population. And it's not just the East Coast. I know, anecdotally, I know some families that have already talked to us about, you know, my hey, my son, daughter's moved out to Nova Scotia or to New Brunswick, as we just talked about. Even in Alberta, apparently the housing prices are less expensive in Calgary than they are in Hamilton and Toronto or on the GTA. I mean, you know, we always thought of Alberta as, oh, my God, the cost of living out there is just through the roof. Uh, no, it's not. And it, a lot of people from Ontario are now thinking, you know what, that's not a bad move. Yeah, look, I mean, the secret is out. I mean, Hamilton, uh, Halton, uh, Niagara are, are great places to live. And you've seen a significant increase of, of interest of people to move there to own their homes. And you've seen property prices go up as a result. So, you know, we, our, our association with the Ontario Realtors is not simply about hand-wringing and, and, and showing where the danger is. We're also putting real solutions uh, on the table. So, so let me give you a few. A big one you've talked about. Yeah. So many times, housing supply. We need to increase uh, choice across the board, whether that's the classic single detached home, uh, whether that's rental units, whether that's mid-rise uh, that are great for starter homes uh, in cities. Increase supply. There is a new opportunity in that realm as a result of COVID. We fully expect that many commercial operations uh, and government operations are going to downsize their footprint. More of their mm-hmm. staff will work from home. They won't need as much space. So how about we convert some of that unutilized government property or buildings or convert some commercial uses to mixed residential commercial? These things already exist. They're already built. How about we convert them to get more affordable housing options to Ontarians? 
And, and that's something that I, some people are being pretty innovative about. I don't know if you saw the story just earlier this week uh, about a guy here in, in downtown Hamilton that just bought an, an old church that had been vacated, and he's turning it into, into condos right downtown. Uh, that's the sort of outside-the-box thinking we're going to need here, isn't it? Uh, exactly. And what we need is our decision-makers. The national government can help, and I'm glad to talk about that in a moment if you like, but yep. it's really provincial and municipal. And, and to the credit, the Ford government did bring through legislation called the More Homes, More Choice Act. It, it was probably the most pro-homeownership legislation bill we've seen in generations. I was excited about it because it took eight of the ten ideas that we put on the table there, and it gave municipalities more tools to speed up the approval process, uh, to reduce the amount of red tape that drives up housing prices and causes delay, and to do more innovation like that church example you just gave. Our point of view is the province and the national government should reward municipalities. So if Hamilton comes up with some really good ideas to be innovative, to create more housing opportunities that people can afford, great, reward them for the next infrastructure project for water or sewer or road or whatever, move them higher up the list. You can use a lot of the carrot approach to reinforce good behavior in our municipalities like that. What about the argument that's going on right now, and this has been happening for years, about how to grow? And I guess this really started, Tim, way back when with the Places to Grow document that uh, I guess it was the McGinney government introduced some time ago, and it's still in play for all intents and purposes. Uh, and the argument here, the debate has been, and you were part of it, of course, when you're still in politics, do we grow out or do we grow up? And, and, and you know, there were some subsets to that, including the fact that, as you say, a lot of starters said, I don't want to live in downtown Hamilton or downtown Toronto or downtown London. I, I want a backyard. I want a place where I can raise my kids, put a swing set up. We want land. We want a single-family residential house. Where do you build those? I mean, you know, there, there's still a, a need for that. And that, Do you go with market-driven or do you go with the philosophy that, no, we can't spread anymore? Um, you actually need you need a balance uh, in in both, and I think uh, you make a very solid observation there, Bill. And the professor, um, I believe from Ryerson, you had on uh, at the mm-hmm. opening, indicated that you know we bought we brought, we built too much of the wrong thing, and we certainly have seen more people looking for uh, larger spaces, maybe to have an office at home for work from home, or move grandma back in with the family, some outdoor space to kick around the soccer ball with your son or daughter, right? So we need to make sure we have some balance between what people actually want. Um, but at the same time, throughout our lives, you know, many of us, when we're younger, we do live in the cities. We live in smaller spaces. Kids come along. You move to the suburbs. That's a fact for a lot of the listeners today. So you need to have both options. No doubt you need things that are going to preserve what is important in environmental space, support our species, both plant and animal, for sure. Protect those areas that are sensitive. But we do need a mix of whether it's turning brownfields into housing and jobs, but also greenfields as well, because that's what people want. If they don't get it in Ontario, well, they'll get it outside of Moncton or Halifax. Well, and as you just said, you can get a big, big tract of land in New Brunswick for about the size of a, you know, a two-bedroom house in, in downtown Hamilton, and therein lies part of the problem. So government seems to be on side, as you mentioned. They understand that there's a crisis here. Both municipal and provincial governments, I think, understand the, the severity of this, and it's it's amazing how this has, has really grown. I mean, when you and I first had this discussion, it was, as you say, drive until you qualify. Uh, so people were moving to places like Caledonia and Cayuga and beyond yeah. you know, the urban centers. Uh, now they're starting to look at the provincial boundaries. Uh, it, it, there's got to be a solution here, and you've, you've just articulated some of this stuff. Uh, let me ask you about something else about this. Uh, the other thing, too, is let's talk with the, your element with the realtors, but also the construction industry. Are they ready, willing, and able to start building uh, these, these units if, in fact, they get the go-ahead from governments? And, and by the way, 
I'm just thinking this up as I go on. Uh, the, getting that okay can be problematic too, because there's still a lot of red tape when it comes to development. There's, there's a lot more we can do in eliminating the red tape and, and moving ahead with uh, with approvals. And as I mentioned earlier, rewarding municipalities who who do that. And while the More Homes, More Choice legislation had a lot of tools for the toolkit, there are too many municipalities, Bill, that aren't using them at all, that are refusing development, that are satisfied seemingly with their young talent to leave those municipalities to go elsewhere because they can't afford a home. So what you do need to have as well the stick to go along with the carrot. We did pull on something called the Ministerial Zoning Order, which enables the Minister of Municipal Affairs to sort of expedite the process uh, with, they're doing it with requests from municipalities to speed up uh, land development for more homes uh, and also more jobs. You, you need that type of approach, too. And, and one more I'll throw on the table. Well, the province has made a lot of progress. Here, here's one where they could pick up their socks a bit more. The Ontario realtors are really concerned about dirty money being laundered into our province. This, this is money from uh, corrupt foreign officials, uh, from criminal organizations abroad who see Canadian real estate as a safe and investment is going to pay off in a long time. But what they do, Bill, is they hide behind numbered companies. You know, it's not like Pablo Escobar's niece puts her, her, her name on, uh, on the property. It's hidden behind uh, these um, uh, anonymous companies. So lift that veil. Let's do a public land registry where you can search who the owners are of these properties or the major business investors. You can match them up with corrupt officials or criminals abroad. You know, Ontario realtors don't want to see one single tract of land that a hardworking Canadian who play by the rules cannot get because it's owned by some drug lord's niece. They can clear that up as well. That's a valid point. We uh, had some representatives from CSIS uh, on just a couple of months ago talking about that, and it's 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 a thing now. Uh, as you say, they're, they're looking at Canada and specifically Ontario and saying that's where we can dump our money, and and they've got methodology to do it. Uh, there is some legislation, as you know, that's out there, but as as the, the folks at CSIS told us, it's got to have a lot more teeth to it, and, and that's something the governments have to address. One other thing I wanted to ask you about, because I know this is something that used to happen an awful lot. Uh, I haven't heard much of it lately, and I'm wondering if it could be part of the solution is rent to own because people still want ownership but they may just say you know what i'm not there yet but can you know, we develop a policy like that is that something that we could kind of dust off and and try to throw out there see i mean look at your background in in, in politics as well as radio I <laughs> you as Man, yeah that's you're right on the money there um and we're actually working with the province on that so there is the rent to own which was kind of you know, a, a 80s 90s policy that that worked but we've got a modern version so let me tell you a bit about it yeah there are, there are funds like pension funds in the, in the U.K. and other sort of patient money that are looking to invest in real estate, not to buy and to rent out, but to co-own. And there's new financial technologies that would enable me to maybe give them 10% of my house, and I pay that off uh, over time, or when I sell the house, by way of example. Those types of modern rent-to-own policies can be the key to unlocking home ownership, particularly for first-time buyers. The problem is, Bill, that some of the legislation in the province dates to the 1970s where they never <laughs> dreamt mm-hmm. about this, let alone the Internet. So we need to modernize those bills. We've had a positive response in the province uh, so far. But these types of uh, new financial uh, tools um, can actually bring homeownership closer to reach by helping people with those essential down payments that are often more the obstacle than the, rent, than the mortgage payments. Uh, people want to get some details about this, uh, about the abacus uh, data that, that you've accumulated. This is all on your webpage, isn't it, Tim? Yeah, absolutely. Folks can go to orea.com. That's the Ontario Real Estate Association. So O-R-E-A.com. They can see uh, our research on what's happening with uh, consumer demand and looking at other provinces 
but also the solutions we've discussed here, Bill. Uh, great to know that you guys are being so proactive on this, and uh, hopefully this is going to create a pathway for, for some solutions to it. Tim, as always, thanks for this. Uh, we'll stay in touch, and uh, uh, there will be further developments, and I'm sure we'll talk about this down the road. Thanks again. Thanks for your time. Have a great day. You betcha. Tim Hudak, uh, the CEO for the Ontario Realtors Association. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. A lot of controversy in the United States uh, with uh, the U.S. Uh, withdrawal from Afghanistan. Uh, former President George W. Bush has actually uh, complained about the administration's decision to go forward on this, suggesting that uh, the women and children in that country are going to go and probably experience unspeakable horrors uh, if, in fact, the Taliban uh, get uh, maintain their foothold there. Uh, but as Andy Field reports, uh, as the U.S. accelerates its withdrawal, the Pentagon continues to justify leaving the Taliban, uh, even though those Taliban attacks continue. Pentagon spokesperson John Kirby saying the U.S. is not abandoning Afghanistan and has left a well-trained local military. They have a robust air force. The Taliban does not. Uh, and they can use that air force in a strike capacity in support of their uh, of their troops on the ground. Still, the Pentagon admits the Taliban poses a threat to the current Afghan government, but says that's not a battle the U.S. ever intended Americans to fight. Andy Field, ABC News, Washington. Well, what is going to happen uh, with the withdrawal, which is expected to be finished by sometime next month? Joining us to talk about this is Professor Earl Braun. Uh, professor Braun is a uh, professor of international relations and political science and a senior member of the Monk School of Global Affairs at the University of Toronto. Uh, professor, always a pleasure. Thank you so much for the time today. Thank you. Are those fears about, you know, the, the minute the, the troops leave in, 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 at the end of August here, that, that Afghanistan is going to simply revert to the way it was 20 years ago? Are, are they well-founded? Is there concern there? It may not be uh, that quick. It may take uh, a little while, but the signs are disquieting. The Taliban has made enormous gains. They do not seem to intend to keep to any agreement. The notion that they somehow would be willing to share power is not in the nature of the Taliban movement. And consequently, there's a great deal to fear that indeed, after the Americans leave, the Afghan government is not likely to be able to sustain itself in the in the long term despite the fact that they do have armaments despite the fact that they receive an enormous amount of aid it may be a similar situation to what happened in south vietnam it's i'm glad you brought that up because that's the analogy that came to mind as soon as we started to see what was developing here uh where after the u.s troops found we all remember those those vivid pictures of the helicopters leaving the u.s embassy and, and abandoning saigon and it didn't take too long for, for you know, ho chi Minh and for everyone else to simply take over and became exactly what they were afraid it was going to happen and the same thing seems to be appearing here yesterday president biden uh says that you know in all likelihood he says the afghan government's not going to be able to control all of afghanistan I don't know that they control much of it right now, but the way the Taliban has been moving over the last couple of months. They have lost a great deal of territory. Now, the Taliban claim that they control something like 85% of the territory. That might be an exaggeration. There are not large cities in Afghanistan, and they don't control Kabul, the capital, uh, for instance. But uh, it may well be a matter of time because this is a, a government that has lost a great deal of popular support. Corruption has been rampant. The vast amount of aid that has been pumped into Afghanistan has not been converted, despite the wish of the people. The, let's not forget that the people of, of Afghanistan had repeatedly gone out to vote, to vote for a government that would represent them, despite threats from the Taliban. So it's not as if the Afghan people have declared that they 
want to live under a regime, the Taliban regime, that is characterized by medieval brutality, it is rather that they have been so unfortunate that those people who were elected have been busy fighting among themselves, there has been corruption that has been corrosive, and the result has been that, particularly with help from Pakistan, which has played an incredibly nefarious role in Afghanistan, particularly the inter-service intelligence uh, of, uh, Afghan, of, of Pakistan, uh, the Afghan people seem to be losing. Which is the, the major concern. I, I, we know we need to be fair here. There have been some incredible gains made here. You talked about democratic elections, and that was not easily done, but it was done. Uh, the, 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 the idea about promoting women's rights and, and getting children and women educated, that's a, a, a huge, huge plus, of course. And we saw uh, Canadian troops and American troops playing a large role in that and in the enforcement of those sorts of things. But in the absence of, of those forces, of that force that's been there for 20 years now, Professor, uh, do they simply revert? back to the Taliban simply said yeah well you're not going to school anymore or no you're not going to have elections anymore the Taliban has not really changed I mean they have tried to improve their public image but they have not uh, altered what their fundamental message is that women do not have the same rights as men that children uh, uh, need to be guided by the most fanatical kind of interpretation of a peaceful religion that uh, girls cannot uh, go to school, that uh, this has to be a patriarchal kind of society where uh, any divergence of views from the Taliban is punished in the most, uh, most brutal way. Let's not forget who the Taliban are. I mean, these are some of the most fanatical, bloodthirsty uh, people uh, one has seen. When they were in power, they were busy killing people in soccer fields. They even destroyed the thousand-year-old statues uh, of Buddha because it did not uh, comport to their religious beliefs. So um, this is not a group that uh, is going to bring diversity that will tolerate any kind of dissent inside uh, uh, Afghanistan. And it's a bit of irony that uh, they survived and they were thriving, the Taliban, to a significant degree because of the interference of Pakistan. And Pakistan has got away with this. But now even the Pakistan government uh, and their intelligence services are beginning to be worried that if the Taliban take over entirely, uh, it may not be that good for Pakistan because of the degree of fanaticism and brutality of the Taliban. There's also some uh, speculation that uh, the Taliban are talking to the Russians about uh, some of those incursions, and uh, some are suggesting there's even been a deal cut there where the Russians will look the other way as long as they don't, uh, you know, impede on, on Russian territory or Russian interests and things of this nature. Uh, so the, there's a str- there's a strategy in place here, isn't there, Professor? Well, Russia is playing a pretty duplicitous game. Let's not yeah. forget that before the United States went in, there's a history of Russia, the Soviet Union being in Afghanistan, uh, and uh, they lost in Afghanistan. Uh, They paid a very heavy price for being in Afghanistan, and uh, uh, they uh, had to withdraw. And it was one of the contributing factors to the collapse of the Soviet Union because it revealed how that regime was wasting the resources of the Soviet Union, and it was engaging in activities where uh, it... uh, uh, lost both lives and, and, and treasure. 
But the current Putin regime, which has a new national strategy, which designates United States and the West basically as enemies, uh, they seem to operate on the basis that it's a kind of binary situation that whatever United States and its Western allies lose is a gain for Russia. So they negotiate uh, tactically, and they believe that if the Taliban stay away from places like Tajikistan, the former Central Asian Soviet republics, which are now independent, but where Russia does have a considerable amount of influence, that somehow Russia will be immune. But I think it's rather foolish because the kind of fanaticism displayed by the Taliban, if they regain power throughout Afghanistan, that will be difficult to keep within the borders of uh, Afghanistan. That's the concern I think a lot of people have professed, that there's a certain naivety with both what Pakistan and Russia are doing to suggest that they can control this. Uh, it controls a, a Taliban that, to, to, to this point anyway, has been uncontrollable no matter who's tried to do it, whether it's been, as you mentioned, the Russians way back in the 70s or uh, the United States and, and uh, those joint forces over the last 20-odd years. Uh, they are what they are. They they have a, a mandate, and uh, you know I, I don't know necessarily that they're going to comply with any sort of a, a quote-unquote deal that somebody's going to offer them it's highly unlikely and this is why the kind of negotiations that took place they started under the trump administration who wanted to pull back american forces at any cost but ironically here's uh, president biden who said united states is back united states now engages in diplomacy who is following that policy if anything he has accelerated that policy and the message that was sent to the taliban is that uh this government uh, in kabul uh, is going to get some aid, but more or less it will be on its own. And remember that the Taliban had this line where they were saying, well, you in the West have watches, but we, the Taliban, have time. We are mm -hmm. going to wait you out. The concern here, of course, is, is you know, what's going to happen going forward and how aggressive the Taliban are going to be. And, and I should probably rephrase that to say how aggressive they're going to continue to be. I know the official position, uh, and I think uh, Press Secretary Saki mentioned this the other day during one of the press briefings at the White House, is that they're, they're hopeful, I think that was the word she used, uh, that there can be some sort of a, a peace agreement between the Taliban and the Afghan government. Uh, the obvious question there, though, Professor, is what motivation would the Taliban have for even sitting down trying to create a deal? There's, there, is there an upside for them to do that? I don't wish to be overly cynical, but the only motivation seems to be to speed up the departure of uh, Western forces uh, as quickly as possible, not to create a situation where some of the Americans will decide to stay or any Western uh, allies of the United States would contribute to security in Afghanistan. So they're perfectly happy to have Western countries send foreign aid, which uh, if the country falls, will all go to the Taliban. And this is where I worry that, you know, in Canada, we have pledged $270 million in development assistance, which is all fine and noble. Uh, but is this uh, going to help the people of Afghanistan, or is it just something that's going to make us feel better? But ultimately, it will fall into the hands of the, of the Taliban. So these are pretty hard questions to ask. And the West does not have a lot of patience. Now, it's true that uh, the Afghan regimes have been uh, uh, very, very corrupt, and they have lost opportunity after opportunity. It is also the case that we have not put enough pressure on Pakistan, which played this insidious role, and we could still put pressure on Pakistan. But um, we have to distinguish between 
what may be feel-good policies and those which may be effective. And I'm not sure what would have been exactly effective, but one of the things that is absolutely essential this kind of situation is to have patience, to have a very long-term commitment. I mean, let's not forget, it's not a perfectly analogous situation, but how long uh, did the Americans and Western powers stay in the Axis powers, in the conquered Axis powers? That is in Japan, in Italy, and in Germany. Well, the answer is they are still there. They are there as allies, and they're not being attacked in Germany, of course, in Japan and in Italy. But that commitment was open-ended. They created alliances, uh, cooperation, and uh, a long-term, in a sense, a kind of permanent strategic assurance. Well, that was never really offered to the Afghan people. It was always... Let's get the job done, and then you are on your own. And with the Taliban, it was, uh, we'll try to wait you out. And the Pakistanis, for their own strategic reasons, and I think it's short-sighted, they therefore gave shelter to the Taliban, encouraged incursions, and now you have almost a kind of Frankenstein's monster. If you're asking the question how bad the situation is likely to be, I think what we should notice, what I mentioned earlier, that even the Pakistan government is now getting concerned about the Taliban taking over all of Afghanistan. With very legitimate concerns. Is the only way to to deal with this and and to exert pressure on Pakistan, first of all, but even on the Taliban, to have a military presence? I I know that this administration is talking about diplomacy, and as you mentioned, the Canadian government's made a commitment. Uh, Minister uh, Karina Gold uh, talked about that the other day, about the money that's going in there. And and I think a lot of people share your concerns, Professor, that that money may not get into the right hands or be used for the right purposes, and that's a concern. But how do you you say stop, enough is enough, if you don't have a presence there? Uh, it, it's it's going to be very, very hard because there is both the substantive element and the symbolic element. The number of U.S. forces that were in Afghanistan was rather small, so we're not talking about a withdrawal of 100,000 troops. They only had about 2,500. Uh, but uh, the symbolism of being at uh, the main uh, base, uh, that uh, they could provide air cover not from aircraft carriers, of the coast uh, of Pakistan, but from within Afghanistan, uh, that psychological element was absolutely crucial. And you will notice that even with the way the Americans under the Biden administration have been leaving, they left in the middle of the night uh, the large air base. Uh, and, and the symbolism of that is profoundly disturbing. It, it makes you wonder about commitment, and that's the whole thing. And I understand everybody probably has the best of intentions here, uh, but uh, I, I think one of the diplomats said, uh, who didn't want to actually be named, but I think it probably encompasses uh, a lot of what people are feeling right now, is just that hope is not a foreign policy. Uh, it, you can't do that. You can't just hope things are going to get better. There has to be some action on this, and they don't seem to be doing that from a position of power right now. No, they're not. And it's very difficult when you look at a conflict like this that has lasted such a long time, where so many resources uh, were were wasted, where so many opportunities uh, were not uh, employed to create the profound change, despite the aspirations of the Afghan people who repeatedly have demonstrated that they want to live safe, decent, 
free lives, mm-hmm. uh, it's easy to become uh, very, very, very cynical. So to advocate that we should be there indefinitely, that we should put uh, uh, lives and uh, treasure at risk indefinitely is a very hard policy. But what exactly are the alternatives? Uh, does abandonment work? And that, uh, I think, uh, uh, is not likely to, to be the, the case. And my fear is that the Afghan people will pay an absolutely terrible price uh, for the West doing what may be good for us, but uh, uh, the Afghan people uh, will, uh, for generations, pay that price. There's a key word there that you just talked about, abandonment. Uh, Do the Afghan people feel as if they're being abandoned? Is there a possibility that there actually could be a a growing resentment about the U.S. forces leaving? There there may be. I mean, that that happens on occasion. And uh, uh, clearly, uh, the Western forces that went in are not blameless. The strategy was not always well-defined. Many mistakes were made, but that's the nature of a military uh, intervention. It's, it's never, never perfect. Uh, and so we can re-examine this, do a kind of post-mortem, what could have been done, should have been done. But the uh, problem is that we have to be future-oriented, and the question we have to ask is, what will happen from now on? And there's not a great deal left. It's not going to be the case where the West will re-intervene. So are we able to exert uh, some pressure on the Pakistan government, which is getting concerned itself, to try to prevent uh, the um, uh, Taliban uh, taking over? Uh, Can we provide some other kind of encouragement to the government in Kabul that uh, it is worth for them to try to fight back and that we will provide some training outside of uh, uh, Afghanistan and financial aid? And there can always be a miracle. It is conceivable that somehow those who still support the Afghan government will rally around them and that they will fight back. But the signs, the amount of territory that they have lost, the collapse of morale in many cases where you see large numbers of well-equipped Afghan forces just surrender to small groups of Taliban, those are profoundly disturbing. Absolutely. Uh, Very tenuous situation. Uh, Professor, always a pleasure to get your perspective on this. Thank you so much for the time today. Pleasure. Take care. Professor Earl Braun from the Monk School of Global Affairs at the University of Toronto. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Another tragic situation. The First Nations community in B.C. says that over 160 undocumented graves have now been found at a former residential site. Global's Dave Bowles has the details. The Penelicate tribe says the discovery was made at the site of the former Cooper Island Indian Industrial School off the coast of Vancouver Island. Global News has reached out for more information about this to the tribe, who says it will hold events throughout late July and early August to raise awareness and to offer time to heal. This announcement follows several similar discoveries across Canada. In May, an estimated 215 bodies were found at a former residential school site in Kamloops. In June, the Cowess's First Nation in Saskatchewan announced it had found 751 unmarked graves at the Maryvale Indian Residential School. School. David Bowles, Global News. Yet another, and probably more to come in a situation like this, exactly where is this headed, and uh, what are the ramifications going to be? 
Uh, joining us to talk about this is Dr. Ken Coates. Uh, Dr. Coates is a senior fellow of Aboriginal and Northern Canadian issues with the MacDonald Laurier Institute. Uh, doctor, thank you for the time. Great to have you on the show today. Great to be with you. Another revelation, another sad, sad story about uh, a, a particularly uh, troubling situation here in, in this particular. And some of the former residents, as you've seen, Doctor, uh, have referred to this particular school as Canada's Alcatraz, I guess because of its geographic location, an island and things of this nature. And uh, I, with that title Alcatraz comes uh, obviously conjuring a presence of, of prison as opposed to school. It, it should, in this particular case. This Cooper Island was quite notorious, <clears throat> not for its entire run, one of the things about residential schools is that the, the principals and the teachers mattered. If you had a particularly mean-spirited uh, principal, the, the school would be uh, in lockdown. If you had a more open and flexible principal, things would change. But Cooper Island suffered through some extremely serious uh, situations that involved uh, you know, gross, uh, gross assaults on, on young children over many, many years. Um, and, and so... It's been held in contempt by the local community and actually more broadly by First Nations generally as one of the most evil examples of a system that was so far from perfect it's quite unimaginable. Uh, according to a center survey carried out, uh, found out that uh, 1896, of the 264 former students, 107 of them had died, uh, which indicates the, some, the living conditions, I guess, among other things. Uh, the, which raises the question, though, Doctor, uh, are, we, are we walking and talking around this issue as opposed to actually doing some exploration as to what happened in these facilities? Well, the interesting thing here is we actually know what happened in these facilities. Uh, we've had a combination of three things. Number one is uh, people who went to the schools have been talking about it for 50 years. Uh, we, haven't, we haven't listened very carefully, to be honest. Mm-hmm. Um, secondly, we had professional historians uh, who wrote some wonderful books and articles on, on different aspects of residential schools and provided a, a very, very compelling argument and analysis of what happened. It, the details are all there. And thirdly, we had a very expensive Truth and Reconciliation Commission that, again, listened to hundreds and hundreds of, of survivors and teachers and other people who were involved with the schools, documented it in full. So we, we actually don't need to... Um, uh, I don't think the main question is about learning more. Uh, the main question is, why do we not listen? Uh, why does the non-Aboriginal population take so long to really hold on to it? One of the things that's happened with the grave sites is that it seems to have captured the public's empathy and the public's almost the you know, sorrow in a very real and very substantial way. I hope it lasts. I don't actually think it will, but, but I hope it actually sort of becomes the thing that reminds us that we have to do something about this. Um, so the question isn't about learning more. We know what happened. The question is about how do you, how do you address the problems and the issues of multi-generational, intergenerational trauma? How do you give communities their, their resilience and their strength back? Um, this is, you know, something that they've been demanding for a very, very long time, and I think the potential is there. Your point's well taken. We haven't been paying attention, and, and that's on us totally. I mean, you mentioned truth and reconciliation, an extensive report that was done, but I would think for most Canadians, though, Doctor, uh, that's a new story that they remember from five or six years ago, and they may have seen Dr. Sinclair, Senator Sinclair, rather, on a, on a newscast and a two- or three-minute report, but out of sight, out of mind after that. And it, it, It's all there. You're right, but who's reading it or who has read it? Well, and, and that's true, and I think it's interesting. So Chief Cowas, uh, Chief um, uh, Delorme from the Cowas' First Nation, and he sort of was asked by a, by a journalist and said, well, what should non-Aboriginal people do about this? And he said, please read the Truth and Reconciliation Commission report. 
because it, it, it handles exactly these issues. There's some great books on this topic as well. But, but it, it, it just reminds us of the fact that for a very, very long period of time, and this is where I think it becomes really problematic for Canadians, uh, the people of, of Canada thought into the 1970s they were doing a great thing. Not an okay thing, not a good thing, but a great thing. The vast majority of Canadians thought residential schools were essential. Uh, they supported it very, very strongly. Um, it's one of the reasons why I find this sort of emphasis on the Johnny McDonald or Edgerton Ryerson be completely misplaced. The overwhelming majority of Canadians thought that assimilating and, and undermining the cultures of Indigenous people was the only way to go. Um, and we need to sort of really reflect on what that means and reflect on the fact that government policy is not going to be the solution. Um, government policy created this crisis, and government policy created many other crises in the First Nations communities. So we shouldn't be looking for some magical maneuver by the government of Canada to actually swift us, change the thing around and create new opportunities. It's not going to happen. The, the solutions are going to come from the Indigenous communities themselves, the money will come from the government of Canada because there's no other source at this, at this juncture. Um, but it is not going to be government policy that leads us you know, from, from this crisis back to a better future. Well, we saw that, I think, after the, uh, the first uh, exploration, of course, the discovery of the sites in Kamloops. Uh, the Prime Minister, I, I believe, was probably heartfelt, and I don't know he was heartfelt in feeling the grief that, that we all felt at that situation, and said, hey, okay, here's what we're going to do. And basically, the three or four things, as you might recall, that he outlined that day, Doctor, were right under the Truth and Reconciliation Report. In other words, they've been there before. The recommendations are right there. Uh, maybe this is going to be the call to action to actually start implementing some of that. I hope it, I hope it will, but, I, but again, it seems to me that if if we think the solution is for the government to do more things, um, I, I think we're going to be wrong because the government will make mistakes again. Because governments acting even with the best interests, even with the what convince themselves that they're doing the right thing, will actually you know not listen to First Nations, not give them the authority to make their own decisions. Indigenous communities can look after their own affairs. When we can judge, when we can basically look at the, the residential school fiasco, the whole situation, and say the one lesson we take from this is that Indigenous people have to be in charge of, of their own future. If we can get to that point, we have, we have a chance. Otherwise, we're going to have more government programs, and 50 years from now we'll be talking about a similar sort of thing because something else the government did wrong. But there is legislation that, that does govern some of this, and, and you talked about self-determination, which is a key request, and, and I think, you're right, an essential part of, of the solution here. Uh, but the Indian Act that, uh, that still exists uh, is archaic, it's, it's, it's restrictive. A, a government can and should be doing something about that. Whether, whether they want to rip it up and just say, let's start over, I don't know what the solution is here. Uh, but that's, I, I would think, part of the problem. It's a huge part of the problem. And one of the things about residential schools that, that worries me um, is that people tend to have this idea that residential schools caused all of the issues and all of the challenges for First Nations. Simply not true. There are lots of communities that sent very few kids to residential school, and they have similar sorts of problems and challenges. It's the Indian Act. It's the past laws. Um, it's a whole series of attacks on indigenous cultures. It's the power and oppressive weight of the Indian agent and the, the reserve system in Canada. All, we have all of those things. You're absolutely right. But, but here, here's the good news. Um, the good news is that there's close to 100 First Nations across this country who are essentially either outside the Indian Act already or are moving outside the Indian Act. 
any community that signs a modern treaty, most of the Yukon, the Nishka, the Tawasin First Nation, First Nations down the, in the Mackenzie Valley, um, when they sign a modern treaty, they get out from under the Indian Act. And, and one of the great stories is the story that doesn't happen. So you haven't heard of a crisis in those communities. You haven't heard of the Nishka government falling apart. You haven't heard of the Champaign-Asiac community falling into hard times. When the Indian Act disappears, things get significantly better. That's the good news. And so we are already partway there. Let's keep moving. How do we progress that, though? How do we move that forward? It seems to be done on a piecemeal basis now. It, 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 it is done on a piecemeal basis, and it'll probably stay that way for the simple reason that not all communities, because of different historical circumstances, are ready to sort of jump forward. So the first thing I would do is we should talk more about the successful achievements that are underway. Um, very few Canadians understand what's happening in James Bay or in northern Quebec um, and understand the degree to which the sort of the autonomy of the First Nations has actually brought some huge and very constructive changes. Um, same thing in the Yukon, same thing in the Mackenzie Valley. So we're seeing, we already know what's happened. Let's talk about them more. Um, let's support First Nations that want to move in that direction um, and find out who's ready to go. So this is not something we can impose. I can't come up and say, hey, First Nations should be in charge of their own affairs as of today. Let's get rid of the Indian Act. The First Nations will tell us. The Métis will tell us. The Inuit will tell us. Um, and we have to learn to listen to that. They are ready to go. You see this with Nunavut where you have a whole jurisdiction that's controlled by the, by, by the Inuit population. Uh, we've got some huge problems in Ontario, huge problems in the Maritimes, uh, where we're not listening and paying attention to the communities in those areas. But if you look at those communities that have established a high measure of self-government, a member to, uh, in, in, in near Sydney, Nova Scotia, is one of the best examples, one of the wealthiest and most successful First Nations, Indigenous peoples in the entire world. Um, largely through their, almost entirely through their strength of their own leadership and their own co collective determination. So we, we have the solutions. We know what works. What role, if any, does, does the Assembly of First Nations play? Because in the past, every time there's been discussion between the AFN and, and any federal government, doesn't matter who the prime minister is, because uh, this has been going on for generations now, invariably we'll, he'll push back and say, well, they don't speak for us. Uh, they, no, that's separate and apart. And did, I, I, you're probably never going to get one voice, Doctor, in situations like this. There's always going to be divergent opinions. But do they have a role to play in this, Assembly of First Nations? They certainly do, but and, and their situation is really sort of uh, evolving, is the nicest way of saying it. I, I watched with admiration what uh, National Chief Cherry Belgar did and what National Chief Archibald is now facing and dealing with in the sort of a, in the immediacy of her, her, re her election. Um, the AFN has two roles. Number one is an advocacy organization. That's been its primary role for a very long period of time. Mm -hmm. Its role is to actually basically you know, advocate for Indigenous affairs, uh, but that makes it sort of on the line of a sort of a trade union or something like that. Um, and, and that's a perfectly legitimate function. It's not a bad function. The second one is we need a mechanism for sort of collective governance. Um, and AFN is struggling with that transition, uh, partly because the government of Canada is struggling with that transition. But again, let me leave you with a, a somewhat positive sort of a perspective on this. Over the last five years, and to give the current government their credit, They've started a process that I would describe as the co-production of policy. It used to be that the budgets would be set by the government of Canada, that the, that the, the policy programs and things like that would be defined by the government of Canada. Now they in, in, engage with AFN and the Inuit representatives and the Métis representatives on an ongoing basis. 
they're talking to them regularly about where they think the policy should be and where the priorities should be. So we're kind of moving in that direction. Uh, my point here being, this is not something that's going to happen in the headlines, and it's not going to something that's going to happen in a very uh, public forum. It's consultation, it's negotiation, and it's collaboration. And that is actually where we see chances for real, real change and real positive uh, transitions. And it's gratifying to know that, as you say, that's something that's ongoing, probably unbeknownst to most of us. How do we keep that ball rolling? Is, 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 there seems to be a momentum here right now, but as you said, uh, oftentimes that momentum is based on news cycles, and, and once this falls off the front pages, uh, so does the momentum. I think part of the issue is, is sort of trying to figure out what the stories uh, should be. So, quite frankly, we really respond to Aboriginal issues when the story is a crisis. Um, we, we don't look at long-term phenomena. We should be looking at what's happening with the uh, incarceration of Indigenous youth in Canada, which is absolutely staggering, like eight to ten times the percentage of the population is in the prison population. And that's kind of hard to make a news story out of because it's sort of a ongoing, you know, multi, multi-decade-long sort of phenomena and this kind of thing that you leave to academics and government officials to sort of talk about. Second point would be to, to get in the habit of telling the, about the accomplishments that are underway. Let me give you one really simple number. Mm-hmm. And I, I you know, don't, don't quote me exactly on the numbers themselves, but back around the 1970s, there were about 300 Aboriginal people in college and university across the country. The number was very small. Um, now the number is about 30,000. That's a massive transition. And when you have a whole bunch of nurses and doctors and engineers and accountants and business people and lawyers and, and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, you are empowering Indigenous people not for not just one life at a time, but whole communities are being empowered. And when you look at the self-governing First Nations in the North, one of the things they've done extraordinarily well is rebuild education. And right through to great right through grade 12, onto college, onto university, onto postgraduate studies. Remarkable achievements by, by these communities. So let's change the story. The story is not just about crisis, it's not about standoffs. Quite frankly, the media's coverage of, of protest movements is, is, is anemic at best. Um, it misrepresents what's actually going on in a systematic way. So five people from Ontario can close down the railway when they misrepresent what's actually happening among the people of the Wet'suwet'en people in northern B.C. So let's be better journalists. Uh, let the media sort of cover more effectively with things that are going on. But don't be afraid to tell the good stories uh, and, and to look at what's actually happening. Uh, one other quick example, Fort Mackay First Nation uh, has a, an average family income of $125,000 per family. That is really, really impressive. Um, how many people know about that? How many people know where Fort Mackay First Nation is or how they've engaged with the oil sands industry to create one of the most prosperous and financially viable indigenous communities in the world? You know, we hear the crisis, we hear the conflict, we don't hear the other side. And I think that's part of the story that's missing. Good point. Excellent point. And on that note, we have to break it off. We're just about out of time. Uh, as always, Doctor, thank you so much for your perspective on this. Really appreciate it. You're welcome anytime. Take care. You too. Dr. Ken Coates, Senior Fellow of Aboriginal and Northern Canadian Issues with the uh, McDonald laurie Institute. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.